Okay, welcome to another uh, special episode of Behind the Knife, uh, covering this COVID crisis. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Sharmila Disanayaka uh, back on the podcast today. She's the professor and Pete C. Kenazaro, uh, Chair of Surgery at Texas Tech, and she is active in clinical surgery with a focus on critical care, trauma, and burns, and is internationally known as a uh, speaker on in surgery. So, uh, Dr. Disanayaka, thank you for joining us again on Behind the Knife, and we're here today to talk to you about uh, the stresses and anxieties of trainees and surgeons and, and how to best manage these. So, uh, welcome, and, and I know this is a tough topic, but thank you for helping us dive into this today. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. I think it's something that we all need a little bit of help with right now. And can you tell me how, I, I know you've been giving some talks on this and have a history of this. Uh, what what made you interested in this and, and what currently kind of alerted you to this uh, kind of crisis as far as our mental health and stress? What alerted you to this upcoming problem? Well, what really started the intersection, I would call it, of two aspects of my life. I've been practicing mindfulness meditation before I knew, before it had that name, actually, uh, when I was 11 years old because a teacher told me meditating would help me improve my grades. So, of course, I went off and did it. And um, that was the beginning. And then it's become a very much an integral part of my life. And the way it kind of snuck into my surgery life is when the burnout crisis began now almost about 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And I realized that maybe one of the tools to help combat this would be uh, some sort of training and mindfulness and, and sort of having a broader perspective. Now, ironically, since then, we have shifted quite a lot. And I no longer teach mindfulness in that context, because I really do believe that burnout is a structural problem with how we do healthcare, And that's where we need to put our attention. However, with the COVID crisis, we are back with a situation where at this point, those of us on the front lines really cannot change very much about the situation. The time for planning and preparation is more or less behind us in most parts. And people are doing the best they can in many situations, but there's only so much we can control. And this pandemic is something that most of us have never lived through before. Very few people are still alive who really remember the polio epidemic and definitely the 1918 flu epidemic. So. I think it's a perfect situation where there really isn't much we can do to fix the awfulness. So it is appropriate to work on ways that we can help deal with the awfulness as best we can, because ultimately with this pandemic, success is going to be measured by survival, by how we get through this, by how much we were able to do. And honestly, just being able to continue to show up and get through this is about as much as anyone can ask. And I think that's just an important concept to make sure we're all on board. And then if there are some ways of looking at this and some ideas that can help us get through it with a little bit more sanity, I think it's worthwhile exploring. Absolutely. And what better way than to have a chairman, a surgeon on its own to like give us your thoughts, you know, on how to deal with the specific stressors that the surgery community is facing in these COVID-19 situation. With that, I would like to bring up the point of how do we recognize what are the different responses that surgeons across the board are having to this COVID-19 pandemic? And uh, what are the things that we should be uh, looking out for in our community, in our colleagues, in our, um, you know, within surgical residency? 
So I think surgeons, by and large, and we have all different personalities. I'm, I'm not trying to say that there is only one. I think that mythology has been busted. But we are, in general, doers. We like to do things. We like to fix things. And I think that spurs us to approach this in the same way we approach most surgical disease. Here's the problem. What's the fix? Okay, let me go find it and do it. And by its nature, since much of this does not have a fix, that can cause a lot of frustration for us because we're trying to use the way of thinking we usually use to COVID and we're not used to it. Most of us don't actually want to manage, for example, diabetes and heart disease because those are lifelong conditions that don't have a fix. And in some ways, COVID is on a smaller time scale, the same thing. There's no real cure, uh, all hopes still you know, pending. So I think firstly, realizing that we can't approach this the way we usually do as surgeons is crucial because it will be our default. There's no way it's not. And the longer you've been a surgeon, probably the, long, the more ingrained this is in you. So it's possible that some of our older surgeons are struggling even more than our trainees. That said, I think the other problem is that we all know that surgeons have a fairly limited role. And in some areas where there'll be a surge, some of us will be deployed as primary care, frontline COVID workers, and in other areas we will not. And I think there's some of that uncertainty because I think in a lot of cases, some people would rather be doing something active on the front lines than simply be held in reserve. And yes, if you're held in reserve, you're lucky enough to have reduced risk exposure. But at the same time, you don't get to do anything that feels useful. And that can be incredibly frustrating. And for a resident, you're on a clock, right? You have five years or seven years with research or whatever it is, or as your fellow, you know, however many years it is, there's a clock ticking for you. And if you're not doing anything because of COVID, it means that something valuable is not getting done. And there may not be a chance for you to repeat that. And I think that is something that one can grieve and one can feel very anxious about and yet you don't want to bring it up because everyone else is talking about people dying of COVID. It feels a little bit petty to bring up the fact that you're not going to get to complete that manuscript or that you're not going to get those last big chief cases before you graduate. And yet that's a very valid concern and it's actually a very valid thing to grieve. Yeah. Um, in, in full disclosure, uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording and I was telling you about how that was something that I didn't like to talk about, but had been uh, a little frustrated by in the fact that my last four months of fellowship here, um, I'm really going to be potentially be missing out on some some great uh, autonomy and, and exposure. And, and you were saying, just like you said, that, that that's normal and, and should be expected in this situation. Absolutely, because it is a loss, Kevin. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. It is a huge loss. And for chief residents and for graduating fellows, those last few months are when you get to have those training wheels become a little looser and you're starting to ride on your own. And it's really probably the best time of training is those last few months. And I think it's absolutely valid to grieve for that. I would have grieved for it if, if I was in that position. And I think understanding that and understanding that it's okay to tell people and commiserate and, and to feel sorry for yourself a little bit. Yeah, it absolutely is okay. Now, like with anything else with grief, though, I think one model that's been incredibly helpful during COVID to a lot of people, and I'll tell you, this is the model being used by executive coaches and 
some psychologists who are working specifically with healthcare professionals in this area, because as you can imagine, there is a big need for that across the country. And the model that seems to be kind of filtering to the top is interestingly, the very famous uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, David Kessler model of the five stages of grief. And you may remember this from way back in medical school that we were all taught this. And I think the reason that so many people are choosing to use this model is partly because at some point, every healthcare professional has heard of it. And so it's an easy model for us to use at a time when we don't have bandwidth to really stretch our brains and learn something very new. And so if you recall, the five stages, don't worry, I'm not going to quiz you on it, are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so I would ask your listeners to think back on how they have navigated the COVID crisis so far. We've all been talking about little else for almost a month to two months now. And you'll probably see that at some point there was some denial that it would be as bad as it's turning out to be. It'll be okay. It won't be that big a deal. It's just the flu. I think we all went through a little bit of that stage. And then there's anger at lack of preparation. And then you go on to the bargaining. Well, if we all just stay home, it'll go away quickly. And then you get to the depression part, which I think is where a lot of the country is in right now. And then hopefully we get to acceptance. And there's actually a sixth stage that they're going to add to it, which is meaning. And I think finding meaning in the tragedy and the suffering that we've undergone is going to finally be the healing stage. So that's kind of the broad framework for suffering in regards to COVID. But you could use that same framework to suffering in regards to your own personal losses for what you're losing in these months that we can't operate and we can't do very much else. And I would say that starting to look at where you are in terms of that framework is a little helpful to get some idea of where you are and where you want to end up. So if we are identifying uh, now, especially as things really slow down, that maybe we are in that depression phase um, and we want to get to the the next phase, um, what are some ways uh, that we can do that? Okay, so that's a great question. I wish I had a perfect answer. I do not. We're all working through this. But I would say that depression, the hallmark, is the sense that it's hopeless and helpless and helplessness, you know, learned helplessness. Nothing we do is going to make a difference. And it's very easy to get stuck there because it does feel like there's very little we can do that makes a difference. And so I would say one cognitive strategy is to look at the things you can affect. Can you reach out and help someone? It is some energy required to reach out from the depths of depression and learn to help others. It's also one of the best ways to get out of it. And obviously, we're not talking clinical depression. We're talking depression here in the context of what all of us are feeling. The more we get out of ourselves, the more it helps. And so whatever we can do to help our neighbors, to help our community in some way, whether that's volunteering Um, or whether it is just going to your local takeout place and trying to help them stay afloat, that is probably going to be actually helpful with unmooring ourselves from that depression. The other thing is to focus on anything that can be changed. And this is where you can have some positive energy, Um, whether it is trying to work on ensuring we get better personal protective equipment. That's been obviously a huge factor in the healthcare stressors whether it is participating in your residency education curriculum, developing some tools, helping your program educate each other the best you can, whether it's forming a study group so that you can put some of this time to good use, whether it's figuring out a way to convert your research into a form that can be done, doing your meetings virtually, whatever you can do, 
I do think that this is where that surgical knack for doing might help us actually get out of the depression. We just have to focus on not doing what we originally planned, but doing something else that we can then look back on as a good use of our time. And by being able to look back on it as a good use of our time, that will hopefully help us get to the acceptance stage. Because ultimately, there is only so much any of us can do. And if we can look back and say, you know what, I tried my best, I did my best. This was as good as I could do, and I did it. I think there's some benefit in that in helping us get to healing. Yeah, you, you made me uh, remember something that I've kind of realized uh, throughout this. In New York City, it's it's kind of a ghost town. And one of the things that I've um, really come to realize is is who is really important and who, who some of the unsung heroes are. And, and many of them are the the custodians, the the people down in the sub-basements providing all the supplies and, and un- unloading the trucks, the grocery store workers, um, all these people that and, and the food delivery people, all these people who I never really, you know, I appreciated, but never to the extent that I do now. Um, and so one thing that that I've made a habit of, or I try to make a habit of doing is just thanking them when I see them. And, and I, I think that goes, um, it, you know, I'm not necessarily helping someone, but um, it does, I, I feel it puts me in a better mood. I, I know I am thanking them, but I, I feel like I get a, you know, reciprocal benefit of, of that. So that's actually called oxytocin. And um, it, it works. You're absolutely correct. Every time you say thank you to someone and they smile and you smile, even if it's behind the mask, there is a little burst of oxytocin that comes out of your brain and it is a free drug that makes us all feel better. So I would say that's a very valid thing to do. And and you're absolutely right, Kevin. Humans are social animals. We know this. The reason that humans have taken over the world is because we know how to work collaboratively together. That's really one of the biggest reasons. And so when you take humans and you put them in this artificial social isolation, we suffer a lot, even if we weren't potentially on the front lines, and even if we weren't surgeons and residents, we would still suffer because humans will suffer when they're taken artificially and isolated. We know this from psychological research back before there were IRB protections. And so the more you can connect with people and that simple act of thanking someone absolutely is a connection, the better. I do the same thing. We have people in our hospitals who are screening people at the entrances Um, And I've always said that's probably more of a psychological benefit than a real one, but nonetheless. um, And I always thank them um, and kind of chit chat just for a few minutes about how much longer they have on their shift and how the day has been. And it definitely, like you said, makes me feel better and hopefully makes them feel better as well. At least they're being appreciated for what they're doing. I think there is definitely something to be said about the community and something that you know it it is we are isolated in our own spaces but at the same time we are all going through the same thing and so there's definitely some uh comfort in that um knowing that the isolation is there but for everybody and i would like to transition that same um thought process into something that is unique to few of our surgical residents and few of the people who are you know perhaps going through the first time uh going through virtual fellowship interviews and that's a um unique situation that only a very small percentage of the surgical residents are going to be facing and there's a very different kind of anxiety and uh, um stress that comes with that could you uh, share your thoughts on that and how they could be facing this situation? Absolutely. So I can tell you from working with my own residents who had to do this, it is nerve-wracking for them. And here's the kicker, if you will. 
nobody enjoys Skype interviews or Zoom interviews or whatever it is. It just, it's, it's alien to all of us, right? And so what ends up happening is they're usually six people in one room at one time instead of individual interviews like you would normally do. And it's awkward and it's unfamiliar. And so the interviewers, being human, will tend to wrap it up quickly. They don't tend to sit and chit chat. And that gives the impression for the poor resident who's interviewing that it isn't going very well and it doesn't feel very good. And I don't think they liked me and my future is ruined. And hopefully that's actually not the case in reality. It's simply a function of this unfamiliar technology. But again, I think it's a very valid concern to have. It's something we need to acknowledge. And I think simply understanding that some of this is universal to everyone else going through the interview process is maybe hopefully a little bit helpful. It wasn't you, they didn't hate you. It's just the way these interviews are working. And I've seen that um, from both sides, actually. It, it really is different. It does not flow as smoothly as we would like. However, I think it's also important to take a deep breath and recognize that the future is uncertain. And I really don't want to add more anxiety to your listeners, but I'm kind of want to be brutally honest and I always am, so here we go. The truth of the matter is a lot of healthcare systems are going to be in severe financial straits at the end of this. And I give a lot of credit to those that have chosen not to do pay cuts or layoffs or anything like that. But even those systems have almost universally got a hiring freeze. And so I think it is sadly necessary for residents and fellows in that position, if they do not already have a job secured that remains secure, to start thinking a little laterally. There are many, many locums positions available, and it is not a failure in this era if you have to do a temporary job before you get your permanent job, simply because across the nation, the financial impacts of this crisis in surgery, where most of us have not been operating for months, are going to be felt for at least one to two years. And that's no fault of anyone's, it's no fault of theirs. But I think preparing for this eventuality and starting to mentally accept that if that's what happens, that's what happens. It is just a pandemic and there's nothing we can do about it is probably better than feeling it as a personal rejection if that's where it ends up. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of adjustments in many ways. And I know some fellowship programs are worried about uh, people getting their visas to come to the U.S. and and, and many other issues um, that it's going to really upheave this next year. And so more anxieties to come for all of us. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, when you when you did teach uh, some of these methods of um, deep breathing and and the mm-hmm. uh, and how to diffuse your brain and what kind of tips you have for those things? Absolutely, because you're right. I mean, it's all well and good to say, well, this is how we should look at it, but it's not as easy to do as it is to say. So one technique that does help, it's helped me, and so this is um, sort of partly from personal experience, but also from quite a good body of research now um, in modern times, is some form of grounding. So I will say that one of the reasons why people get most stressed is that they live completely up in their heads. We're always like little, you know, I I kind of say it's like being a lollipop. You're this big head and nothing else below because we just live in our thoughts the whole time. And so I would say that the first step is some form of grounding exercise that gets you out of your head and into your body. And a lot of surgery residents and surgeons already have some sort of practice, right? They run 
or they ride or they have some sort of physical activity. And I would say that those who do not, now is a wonderful time to take one up because the more you can get out of your head and rather than just sort of watch TV while you're doing it, try to really get into your body and be a physically embodied being that will help reduce some of that anxiety. Because remember the anxiety stage uh, and, and really a lot of anticipatory grief is anxiety. For those who are not in the middle of the surge yet, a lot of this is anxiety about what, what is to come. And anxiety is fed by constant thoughts over and over in your head. So getting out of your head is important, whether it's gardening or some form of physical activity. Um, you know, the more strenuous, the better. But even if it's yoga or tai chi, and yoga can be very strenuous, um, that is all. Just get out of your head. So that's number one. Number two is to practice some form of grounding meditation, and that's something I personally find helpful. So for me, it's simply sitting down comfortably. I choose to sit cross-legged. You don't have to. You can sit in a chair and focusing on the breathing of your abdominal wall. So it's as you breathe, instead of focusing on your nose or your chest, which some meditation techniques do, but the one I teach, you focus on your anterior abdominal wall. I always like to say two centimeters below the umbilicus, and it's great to have surgeons because they know exactly what that means. And you just focus on that movement. And you just try to be with the physical movement. And if that's really hard, because so many of us are cerebral all the time, you can label it in and out or one and two as you focus on that movement. And to just breathe normally, you usually start with some deep breaths and then you move to breathing normally and just focus on that movement. And in under 10 seconds, usually your mind will start racing and going on to other things because your mind thinks that your abdominal wall is really boring. And then you just <laughs> gently bring it back to your abdominal wall and you just keep following it. And if you can do that, even for two minutes, I say to set a timer on your phone, one of the few things that the smartphone is good for that doesn't cause distraction is the timer. So to set a nice, pleasant timer for two minutes and just try to keep your focus on the anterior abdominal wall for two minutes. And if you just try that today, you will notice it actually does seem to calm the mind. And remember, the goal is not to stop thoughts. The goal is not to beat yourself up every time your mind wanders. It's just to go, okay, come back to the abdominal wall. And the analogy I use is like training a puppy, right? So when you're training a puppy to sit, it's not going to work if you beat up the puppy every time it strays. You just gently bring it back and make it sit. That's what you're doing with your mind. You're treating it like a puppy. You gently bring it back to the abdominal wall and say, sit. And that's how that works. And so that's a two-minute exercise. Obviously, if you can go for longer over time, that would be great. But one thing I would suggest, since surgeons like to be competitive about this, it is more valuable to do this every day than it is to do it for one hour one day and then nothing the rest of the week. So if two minutes or five minutes is all you can do every day, do it, but do it every day. And, and I think that would be helpful. That is a perfect technique. I actually... Uh, to piggyback on what you said, uh, a lot of surgery residents are wearing Apple Watches these days, and there's a great uh, inbuilt app called Breathe um, that you can set your timer to be every 24 hours. It just reminds you uh, by buzzing that, you know, for a minute, you are just supposed to breathe with it. And it's a great way to get into the habit of, um, you know, focusing on your breath, even if it's just like you said, um, you know, one minute or two minutes, um, but every day. I love it. I mean, that that's absolutely right. And it's a way to use technology to our advantage since we can't exactly escape it, especially now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for me, I do this 
usually for one hour every morning when I wake up. I tend to wake up very early. And that's my time. And the way I look at it, you don't want this to be yet another to-do item, right? And I'm only asking you to start at two minutes, not, not, not asking for an hour. But it shouldn't be a to-do item. The way to look at this, and this is uh, one of the Thai meditation masters used to call it, a holiday for your heart. Meditation is your break. And that's really the way to look at it. That if you can spend a few minutes, this is your break. And yeah, if your Apple Watch dings and you can just go to the restroom for a few minutes and take your time out there. I, I think that's just giving yourself space. And again, we're doing this not just for ourselves. We're doing it for everyone around us. Because the more that we can have sanity and groundedness in the midst of this chaos, the more we are a resource to everyone around us. Yeah, I think that's uh, really important. And I'm, I'm sure many people have heard there's an app called Headspace um, that is free for healthcare workers right now. And I, I've done some of their intros and and it's quite quite good, especially for the, for the beginners. Um, one interesting thing, too, is I'm uh, reading a book about Abraham Lincoln and some of the extra time right now um, called A Team of Rivals. And, and they talk about what he did um, is he would he went to Ford Theater over 100 times. And the, and the exact reason he did it is he said he completely got out of his mind like he completely forgot about the civil war going on um, and could focus and enjoy Shakespeare and that really and he wouldn't talk to anyone or do any business during that time and so he was a that was sort of one of his methods of of sort of dealing with this and dealing with stress absolutely and uh, just so you know I think that app is good it it, it does promote the similar type of mindfulness meditation that uh, I work with as well Um, I would suggest that, you know, it's a good starting point and then you want to kind of launch from there and make it more a part of your regular life. But absolutely. Uh, I I think those are all great ideas. And that's a great book, by the way. (laughs) It's uh, it's long, but I'm I'm, I'm getting through it. Um, Well, Dr. Desanayka, thank you so much. Is there any uh, parting thoughts on uh, wellness that you'd like to let us know before we close this out? Well, just not to forget the simple standard things that, you know, there are healthy ways to deal with stress and less healthy ways to deal with stress. And I will tell you that there are people right now who have quit smoking and taken it up again because of the stress. And there are people who are drinking more than they should. I will admit I usually drink just a very little glass of wine here and there. And that was a week where I think I had a glass of wine every night and I had to go, okay, time to stop this. So it it is for all of us, there are better and less good ways to deal with stress. And I would just say to be a little bit mindful of that. You know, if you're binge watching Tiger King, okay, maybe that's okay for a day, but maybe not multiple days in a row. We do need to be a little aware when we're using maybe less healthy ways to cope with our stress and perhaps set some limits on that so that it's easier for us when things go back to normal to get back to where we used to be. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, A little bit of uh, unhealthy coping is okay as long as it's uh, limited. And I think we're all uh, probably have a little bit of that going on also. Um, So Dr. Disanaika, we can't thank you enough. uh, And we look forward to having you on Behind the Knife again in the near future. Until next time, dominate the day.